Hi, I'm Jahada Weaver, and you're listening to Tech Mirror. So listeners, today I'm really excited about this podcast and I'm excited for a couple of reasons. The first is because my guest is here in person with me, which is actually a first for the podcast, which is very exciting. Uh, and second, because of who our uh, who our guest is. So Professor Eleanor Huntington, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, it's delightful to have you here. I, I'm particularly excited because you are someone who unabashedly says that you want to make a difference uh, and you want to uh, change the world. This is actually a very bold statement to make uh, and not a lot of people say those, you know, a lot of people think about that, but not very many people say it out loud. So I'm really excited for the conversation we're going to have uh, today. So thank you very much for being here. Well, thank you so much for inviting me. And I had no idea I was the first in-person um, uh, per, per person on the podcast. So, wow. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we, I tend to be in the studio and we tend to have the guests joining us remotely. And I have done a few in-person interviews but weren't in the studio, but you are the first one uh, here in the studio. So, symptom of, uh, of starting during COVID, of course. Um, but uh, it, it is, I can already tell, um, a lovely feeling to it. So, the first question that we asked ask all of our guests uh, is what was your first experience with the computer with a computer or with the internet and just to contextualize why we ask this question because we do ask everyone it but it's not because we're lazy and can't think of a better question <laughs> uh, it's really because what we want the podcast to be doing is reflecting on the way that technology is shaping society and by looking back on people's first experience it helps to remind us how far we've come in a short period of time and perhaps allow us to forgive ourselves for a little bit for the situation that we currently find ourselves in. But it also helps to reflect um, just how much technology is shaping on our experience, shaping our experiences uh, in the world today. So what was your first experience? Maybe with the computer or with the internet, you can choose which one. Uh, well, so I'm old enough that uh, the sequencing was my first experience with a computer and then an experience uh, with the internet. Yeah. Um, so noting that the, the internet came to Australia in 1989 um, and such is the cycle of life that I, I happen to now get to sit on the board of the company that brought the internet to Australia, but that's a whole other conversation. Um, so my first experience with a with a computer was in the early 1980s. Yeah. Um, my mum bought us uh, the whole family uh, a, t- a Tandy TRS-80. Ooh, um, I've heard of that one. Yeah, so it had like a whole 80k's worth of RAM, uh, and my mum taught me <laughs> and my brother how to code in BASIC. So wow. yeah, yeah. That is amazing. And then when when did you do you remember the first time that you connected to the internet? I think actually it might have been when I was an undergraduate student. Yeah. So it would have been 94, 95, yeah. something like that. Yeah. And early. Um, yeah. yeah. And it was it was in the it was actually when I was a student and it was in the days when like it You'd have to you'd click on a on a link on on a web browser and it, you'd, like you'd actually watch the images render slowly yeah. line by line and I remember thinking at the time, why is anyone bothering? <laughs> and now we can ask that question and probably get a very different answer, but it's still a very valid question. <laughs> um, now. Uh, I also wanted to drill down a little bit on your your current roles and your previous roles. Now, my husband happens to be a helicopter pilot, which sounds tangential, but it means that we often have conversations about the coolest sounding jobs because usually when we're sitting at a dinner table, he wins that competition. 
I think, actually, your title as a quantum cybernetician, uh, which is is one of your many titles, and we'll move on to your, your role at CSIRO shortly, but a quantum cybernetician certainly sounds like one of the coolest jobs I've ever heard of, but I've got no idea what it means. So could you uh, share a little bit about <laughs> what a, that is? Have a crack. Yeah. Um, so uh, first of all, I have to give credit for the name to uh, a colleague, uh, Matt James, who um, is now an emeritus professor in the School of Engineering here at the ANU. Yeah. Uh, and um, the, 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 the circularity of life again has yeah. just come out in the sense that at the time, um, the, the, the word cybernetics and um, what that meant was actually somewhat fossilized language. Um, Matt was actually reaching back to the days of uh, the 50s and 60s when cybernetics was um, a language that was used quite a lot and all of the rest of it. Uh, and Matt and I um, had been working on a range of collaborations around um quantum control of quantum systems. So um, my particular background is in laser engineering, building lasers, and then starting to work in um, the world of quantum computing. And one of the things about um, when you're trying to have uh, technology escape from the lab into the wild and, and go to scale is that um, reproducibility, robustness, and ability to just make thousands of these things and have them work the same way every time, like that's, a, that's actually a serious serious engineering question and it's it there's research in there uh, and that becomes particularly important when you think about what a control system is so if, you know the most obvious one is um, the cruise control on your car where um, your you, you tell your car I want to drive at 100 k's an hour um, the car measures your speed and it will just control the accelerator or not to to set at that yeah. now the thing is that um, it's measuring your speed in quantum systems everyone talks about kind of crazy stuff that quantum systems do one of which is that measurement actually changes the quantum system. So how the hell you build control loops where there's measurement involved? Like that's a super complicated and wacky kind of a thing. So anyway, Matt and I were collaborating on a whole bunch of research questions around that. And um, Matt reached into what was then archaic language around cybernetics and control systems and um, interface to the environment. And that's how we landed on that language. Um, and, you know, the circularity of life is that, you know, we now actually have a whole school of cybernetics uh, in the ANU. Um, but at the time, that was just not, that was not language that, that we were using at the time. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, it's super cool. And, and the concept of cybernetics, as I understand it, is looking at systems and how all of the different systems work together. So not just technical systems, but how people, how technology, how the environment all interact. Is that a fair assessment uh, of what cybernetics actually is? Well, so so that that um, so yes, uh, uh, and I think we we took. I mean, when Matt and I were talking about quantum cybernetics, I think we took a somewhat narrower view. Yeah. Um, but uh, the you know the current language around cybernetics reaches even further back than Matt was reaching to start to talk, as you say, about systems of systems and how you bring the full complexity. Um, into that into that equation, not just um, the technical system. Mm. Um, when Matt and I were talking about that, it did act, it, it related to what the quantum environment of a technical system might be, which is not quite the same, the same thing. thing. Yeah. But you know, it's a subset of it, and it's um, uh, it's it's it, it, I, I guess the the more expansive the definition, the more the more helpful that is in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so uh, 
I, I would like to ask you uh, what your definition of quantum computing is, but I'm kind of scared of what the answer is going to be because every time I ask this question, I get a different response and sometimes it makes me feel like I understand it and other times it doesn't and I'm at the, the verge of thinking I understand it. So let's see if we can see if I can stay there. Can I have a crack and tip, tip the tables? Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. 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 Well, so so what, what, what definitions have resonated for you? I think for me, the, the definitions that resonate the most are, um, so two, one is that classical computing is essentially looking at things in ones and zeros, so binaries, and quantum computing is looking at um, basically any number in the middle. So you kind of have an infinite number of possibilities all happening. Uh, and then the other is flipping a coin. And if you flip a coin um, in classical computing, you're waiting for heads or tails. But uh, in quantum computing, you could have any number of those things all happening at the same time. They're the ones. So it's it's the number of possible outcomes and the speed, you know, the the, the simultaneous mm. computation that's happening at the same time. Uh, it's She's just, twitching, yeah, everyone. No, 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 you, 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 I was actually just reading your body language, and your body language is uh, upwards intonation. Like there was yes. there was a there's a physical upwards intonation as a question. So yes, I agree. I, you know, they they, they make perfect sense. Uh, and I guess for me, um, where I go um, uh, as a deeply pragmatic person is. Um, sometimes even to just step away from like the quantum mechanics that sits underneath a quantum computer yeah. and just ask questions about also what's it good for, what's it useful for. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so when you come at it from that direction, um, it turns out that there are a, a small number of um, particular types of calculations that quantum computers harnessing that that um, stuff that you were talking about, yeah. there's a small number of calculations that a quantum computer can do better than a classical computer. Yeah. And better in this case means using fewer computational steps, therefore fewer resources. Um, and these days, given what we all know about um, the, the vast amounts of energy that goes into doing big calculations, therefore less energy and therefore it's kind of better, better for the planet. Mm. Um, and so there's actually only a relatively small number of types of calculations that quantum computers can do better yeah. um, but they are incredibly important and so that's why everyone's really excited about it yeah and can you give a couple of examples or an example of sure um, so so the, the the um the one that the one that um kind of got the whole the whole ecosystem going was it sounds really dry but it's a mathematical calculation to find um the prime factors of a large number which yep. sounds like you know not very interesting but um it's the it's the mathematical calculation that sits underneath um, most of the public key crypto systems that enable you to do your internet banking yep. securely yep. um there's another one which sounds even more dry which <laughs> is um uh searches on unsorted databases so um, for, for, for those of the listeners who are old enough to remember the, the old physical telephone book, um, uh, what you would do is you'd go, you'd go through the telephone book by the name of the person and then you could look up the person and find their phone number. Now imagine that actually you're looking for a phone number to attach to a person, so the other way round. Mm -hmm. And like the number of times you would actually on average have to search through a phone book in order to find that person based on sort of the, the random set of numbers in the way that it's ordered, yeah. like that's that's like there's a lot of steps in there. Yeah. Um, and so so it turns out that, that you can write algorithms that do that. That's what computers are good for. And um, there's a particular algor algorithm that quantum computers are 
can do that faster than a classical computer, which sounds really dry, but it turns out that um, actually it's a specific example of a much more general mathematical step that actually now appears in the vast majority of machine learning algorithms. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, the, the, the app that we all thought that we were making quantum computers for is, yeah, like that's still going to be incredibly important, but actually when the thing that we're building quantum computers for is not the thing we thought we were building quantum computers for. These days it's mostly um, in the short term. It's, it's as likely to be uh, about quantum machine learning than anything else. Well, and, and machine learning essentially being what underlies what is commonly referred to as artificial intelligence for, for listeners who um, are not um, technically minded. Yeah, there's, sorry. For <laughs> listeners that are technically minded, I appreciate that there's a big difference between artificial intelligence <laughs> and machine learning. But for, for current purposes, uh, that, that, is, uh, that will suffice. Um, so, Eleanor, you, you were uh, the first female uh, head, uh, dean of computer science uh, and engineering uh, at ANU. For many people, that would be the pinnacle of their career. Um, but you have just uh, left ANU, definitely our loss, and moved on to uh, be a executive director at uh, CSIRO, our national research organisation. Um, what what led you to make that move? It's um, it, it's one, you're going from one premier research organisations to another. So in many uh, respects, it's a logical uh, step. Um, but it, they are quite different roles that you've taken on. So um, you, you, you touched on it a little bit right at the start. So so the, the thing about me is that I have no idea what I want to be when I grow up and I kind of never have. Uh, and when grown-ups used to ask me that, um, I used to um, feign interest in all sorts of things. Um, if I had actually been asked a different question, which is what is it that you want to do when you grow up, um, these days I actually have a like I have a robust answer to that and what I want to do is make a positive difference in the world yeah. using the skills and expertise that I've got. Um, and so, you know, CSIRO was uh, created more than a century ago. It was created to sit in that complicated liminal space between fundamental research and um, impact on the real world. Um, and uh, that is still what CSIRO is there for. The purpose of the, the, the organization is still to do that. Um, obviously, the types of problems that we're tackling now are different, both scientifically and in terms of um, the, the world around us. Um, and the particular job that I've gone into is, um, it's a somewhat cryptically named Executive Director of Digital National Facilities and Collections. Yep. Um, uh, but the thing, that, the thing that ties all of that together is that um, uh, research infrastructure uh, and the research that happens on that infrastructure is um, an incredibly important part of the fabric of the way that, um, in fact, ideas connect between uh, fundamental ideas and impact on the outside world. Mm. Um, and you know, having spent some time hanging around with with anthropologists at the, at, at the ANU and, and social scientists, one of the things that I've learned is that when uh, engineers talk about infrastructure, we think in terms of roads and water and bridges and airports and railways and the broadband and that sort of stuff. Mm. Um, the more the more general definition that social scientists come at this with is it's the, the systems over which um, value is traded, essentially. Yeah. Value being um, economic, being goods, being power, being whatever it is. Um, and so research infrastructure is kind of like it's, it's the system where these ideas get generated. It's where ideas get traded. It's where not just scientific ideas, but the ideas about how it might make use in the in the outside world gets get, gets traded. 
what's not to love about that? Yeah, I mean, you know, so cool. and to connect that with the idea that um, uh, what you want to do is make a positive impact on the world. Mm. What's what's not to love about that? Yeah, and and this idea between fundamental research and impact is something that I had never come across until I joined ANU um, just over a year ago, and um, it it's a Interesting for for people who don't work in the research world, um, I I think it's often hard to understand what the difference is. Can you um, just describe that a little bit? So the way that I understand it is fundamental research is research that you do without a particular goal in mind. You're doing the research because you want to solve um, a particular problem, um, but but along the way you usually find other solutions or um, it, it's where a lot of the fundamental discoveries come into play. Um, and uh, there's this concept of commercialization, which is um, the idea that you do research for commercialization becomes a very controversial subject. So can you unpack that a little bit? Uh, well, I can do my best. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, th- this is this is of course the the world according to Eleanor with yes, all of the of course, with yeah. all of the um uh, uh um uh, caveats that sit around that. Um, so so fundamental research is perhaps not not as descriptive as it as it could be. Mm. A- another dis- a slightly more descriptive term type, term might be discovery based research. Mm. So the idea that um, you're doing the research. Um, with with a view to um, discovery, with a view to um, advancing the frontiers of the body of knowledge in which you are working, but not necessarily with um, an economic or a societal um, outcome in mind, or even an application in yeah. mind. Usually, you know, the, the the quality ones would usually have line of sight to that, yeah. but not necessarily specifically motivated. By that, so it's more. It's more. So, so discovery based might be um, a more useful yeah, way that, of describing it. That resonates it. Yeah. with me a lot more than fundamental research. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Yeah, and um, and you have written uh, about the conditions of possibility in Australia. I just love that phrase, the conditions of possibility. So, what do you think are the conditions of possibility in Australia, and how do we cultivate them? Yeah, so so this was a this was a train of thought, and I'm interested in your take on what they might actually be. So this was a train of thought that um, started for me when I uh, was doing some reading about and understanding what infrastructure might be writ mm. large, and so I found this um, amazing series of uh, of, of um, work that looked at um, how reggae, the entire musical genre, was. Oh, awesome. Created, yeah, um, and that sort of starts started Not where I thought you were going to go. No, in this no. question, I, I, fig- I f- figured you might say that. Um, and like it started a whole train of thought about conditions of possibility. Mm. So, so to sort of wind back a little bit, um, it it turns out that that like this all started around World War Two. So, so it turns out that um, uh, a whole bunch of um, uh, people from all around what was then the Empire signed up to help. Britain during World War II, mm-hmm. including people from Jamaica. Um, and it turns out that uh, at the time, a whole bunch of people particularly signed up to the to the Royal Air Force. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, the RAF had what they called a colour bar. And it meant that it was essentially only um, 
white men who could go into combat positions in the RAF. They were considered to be the prestige positions and so they were the people who were considered appropriate to go into those positions. So a whole bunch of Jamaicans um, and women and people from the LGBTI community uh, and, you know, so signed up and they ended up being trained in um, things like being an electronics te technician um, or computing or calculations and stuff like that. So lower prestige but um, uh, um, quite interesting um, sets of skills that mm. they would not otherwise have had access to. Uh, and you think about how that unfolds in different societies and different cultures once everyone was demobilized after the war, then that's where sort of I started thinking about conditions of possibility. So in the UK, what that meant was that um, uh, essentially um, Australia, uh, Australia, sorry, the UK actually had the world lead in the computing industry after World War II. Um, mm. They got overtaken by the USA for a range of reasons, but they had the world lead. It was also largely women's work. Mm. It, interestingly, yeah. um, uh, that changed over time, uh, and there's a potentially range of there's a range of reasons around that. But um, that's where it un, that's how it unfolded. That were the was the conditions of possibility in the UK. In Jamaica, what happened was that a whole bunch of folks were demobilised and had all of these amazing skills, and um, that intersected with uh, a bunch of the the cultural tr traditions in Jamaica around music, and um, uh, it also happened to intersect with an ability to start to hear rhythm and blues coming from the stronger, the most powerful of the radio stations out of America, mm -hmm. um, and those cultural traditions around music intersected with technical skills to make sound systems, um, and uh, it just it hit a resonance. Like it just hit a cultural resonance, uh, and so the conditions of um, possibility unfolded utterly differently in Jamaica compared to the UK. Yeah. Um, and so, like that was just like that's interesting. And so then you ask yourself the question: Well, so um, how might that play out in Australia? Mm. And uh, I mean, so we talk a lot about the value of diversity and that story, uh, particularly in the context of the UK and the UK being um, a leader in uh, in uh, computer science after they've had this injection of diversity that were, weren't allowed in those prestigious jobs. I mean, that's a, a really excellent case study for diversity being a, a having a positive impact that I've never heard before. So yeah, 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 yeah. And there's great. some there's there's really interesting books about the history of computing um, that that kind of touch on that. So yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and so we always ask this question at the end, but since you've mentioned it, do you have any ones that you would particularly recommend in that space? Uh, in that space in yeah. particular? Um, yeah, there's there's a book called Programmed Inequality by Mayor Hicks who okay. um, who who talks particularly about um, uh, how that unfolded in the UK. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, so one of the questions that I get asked a lot, but I don't really have a very good answer to, um, is when we're talking about conditions of possibility, um, is also around types of technology that Australia excels in. And the obvious example um, of one at the moment that people always give is quantum computing, which we've just discussed. But are there other types or other areas where Australia is actually just quietly working away at that we're actually quite good at that you wish there was a little bit more attention paid to or, or that people should be paying more attention to? Well, so, I mean, quantum computing is obviously um, one that's very topical at the moment. Um, and I mean, there's, it, it's interesting, again, to kind of explore um, uh, 
what sets the parameters? Mm. Like where would you go looking for the sorts of things where we might um, have a um, particular area where we would excel? Um, and like you think about the the, the fascinatingly distinctive um, aspects of Australia where, you know, it's a very large geographic landmass. Um, we have uh, population concentrated in um Basically, the 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 the, um, the the coastal edges of yeah. the country, um, we we um, uh, our population density isn't as great as many other um, places, uh, and so you know the sorts of the sorts of things that we do well at is um, imagining creative solutions to things where um, there's um, Climate extremes where mm-hmm. there's um, a scarcity of energy, mm-hmm. um, uh, long, long um, time between particular activities, stuff like that. So, um, you you can imagine places where we're always we're, we're most likely to find solutions to particular problems that require um, lean solutions that just kind of work. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, there are times when actually we can concentrate on something for a very long period of time and develop it to an amazing p- p- pace of, place of maturity, like, for example, quantum computing mm-hmm. and things like mm-hmm. that. We've been working on that for – Australia's had the lead on that for quite some time. Um, interestingly, a lot of the intellectual genesis for that comes out of New Zealand, which is um, – Oh, really? Yeah. But the, uh, <laughs> that, that, that's, that's a whole other conversation. Um, but, yeah, so, you know, things like um, – uh, you know, we're we're quite good at. Uh, you can imagine that we're going to end up being quite good at things like edge computing, mm-hmm. um, which you know most computing these days um, involves throwing huge amounts of computational resources at something, um, but that also requires huge amounts of energy to mm. to consume it. So now imagine that you're working in some um, geographically remote location where you don't have access to a stable grid, or um, mm. you're just running off batteries, and you know it's a three hour drive to charge your battery back, uh, um, back up again or something like that. Mm. So you're not going to necessarily be able to um, uh, throw massive amounts of compute at um, uh, at, at the devices that are kind of sitting at the edge of the internet of, of the internet. So that's why it's called edge computing. Mm. So you can imagine that we're going to be good at things like that. Um, one of the places where we're likely to have a niche is actually going to be around responsible technology and responsible artificial intelligence. Um, and that's a, they're threads that have run through everything that Australia has done over time. Um, there's a reason why everyone wants to buy um, like our premium beef because the provenance is well understood. Mm. Um, and it's not just about provenance, it's about also responsible and ethical approaches to mm. to um, creating those exports. Um, uh, and, you know, the, you, you can imagine that that's just going to keep rolling on mm. as we go mm. as well. And potentially, I'm going to try and link those two together. Watch me. This may or may not work. Um, edge computing, provenance of beef and responsible AI. Yeah, go for it. Yep. Um, in a farmer's application. So, you know, a farmer in uh, 10 or 15 years time is the perfect example of someone who would need to have access to edge computing, which is not actually a phrase that I was familiar with until you just referred to it. But but that makes sense to me in, this, in the fact that – 
The actual compute power sits a long way from the farmer in the paddock, but they will increasingly be using technology for precision farming, um, potentially accessing, um, I'm not sure if I can work artificial intelligence, that might be a stretch too far, <laughs> but, but then um, also then having the, the, the amazing Australian product um, uh, being shipped uh, to, to market. So, uh, okay, that's, that's good. That's a good answer. I hadn't, I, um, I, it, it's very obvious when you say that that is something that would be um, of particular use for Australia and, and perhaps is also an interesting expansion of, um, of Wi-Fi, which was the origin, you know, I'm sure you get sick of being told that, but uh, Wi-Fi being a, a CSIRO uh, invention. Um, all right. So I have a, the next question that I have on the list is uh, one that I don't actually agree with the premise of the question. So this oh, okay. is uh, given that it's my question. Disagree uh, with you, your premise. <laughs> exactly. Um, which is why isn't Australia a global technological powerhouse given all of our science capital? And I think we actually probably do punch above our weight um, in certain areas, um, but not in all areas. And we've given some examples there of where we are. Um Without prejudge, so what? What's your response to the question? While I stop critiquing my own <laughs> questions, um, well, so so uh, may, maybe one back and define terms. Yeah, so right. so science science capital is yeah, um, is a is an interesting idea. So. Um, uh, Philosophers, uh, philosopher in the middle of the 20th century, um, sort of generalised the concept of capital beyond economic capital to include um, cultural capital and social capital and political capital and um, uh, that sort of thing. And so, science capital is kind of one subset of cultural capital yep. in the sense that it's it's designed like the term is meant to cover um, somebody's awareness of science, it's their understanding of science, um, their attitude towards it, um, uh, who they know, uh, in, you know all, all of the forms of cultural capital that would come, but relating specifically to science. Um, and like any other form of capital, that means it, 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 it's that, that means that you get to accumulate it, that means that you get to um, expend it, you get to expend it to a particular purpose, that sort of thing. Um, and Australia writ large obviously has you know huge amounts of science capital. We've mm. got 0.3 of the world's percent of the world's population and we generate 3% of um, the, the world's uh, publications. Um, you know, we, there are 1,300 odd universities in the QS world rankings. It's a ranking scheme for universities. Um, Australia has of, of has seven in the top 100. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a, you know, we, as you say, we disproportionately um, punch above our weight in terms of science capital. And then the question is, well, so how are we spending it? Where's it going? Mm. Um, and mm. so, so that's, that's the question that that's, that's the interesting conundrum. And then you go look at a different form of capital. If you look at sort of like the OECD statistics and Australia, I mean, most people know that Australia um, doesn't spend as much of its GDP on R&D as some of the other um, uh, countries. Uh, and you unpick that a little bit and uh, Australia is actually doing just fine in terms of expenditure on what the OECD call fundamental research, or you know, we've just discovery. redefined the term as discovery-based <laughs> research. Um, Australia does just fine on that. Yeah. Um, we also we actually punch w way above our weight, possibly too much in terms of what the OECD call development. Mm -hmm. So we spend 
more on development than many other OECD countries. The place where we have a big hole is in what the OECD call applied research, which is that complicated liminal space between discovery-based research and the outside world. Mm. Um, and that's that's the conundrum for Australia is to how we do that. And certainly when I went poking around inside of OECD spreadsheets a couple of years ago, <laughs> what I discovered was that um, like you go looking at countries that do better um, there. Um, and what's going on is that, in fact, most most of the expenditure on um, applied research is coming actually from a small number of big companies. So it's not so much government, mm -hmm. it's big companies. And the big, I think, is possibly a clue there in the sense that they're companies that have um, the patience and the need to take the time and the financial capital to actually see through ideas from um, uh, kind of abstract advances in the body of knowledge through to actually, no, I can see how I can have that make a difference mm. in the world. Mm. Um, and that's that's the place where Australia is somewhat undercooked just in terms of expenditure. Mm. Um, and you can see that that manifests in, um, uh, there's a lot of discussion about Australia's economic complexity at the moment. It manifests there as well. Mm. Um, so that's the interesting question about how we go about doing that. Um, and uh, that's the place where, um, you know, a lot of attention is being paid at the moment. Mm. And and presumably that's also the area where CSIRO has a special convening role. Is that something that you see as part of your new role? Well, so, yeah, and, and look, um, that was kind of, you know, if, if, if you could teleport backwards in time, that's mm. kind of where CSIRO was always meant yeah. to sit uh, yeah. in that complicated liminal space between discovery-based research and impact in the outside world. Yeah. Um, so so clearly the whole organisation has a part to play there. Um, and look, you're absolutely right. I mean, CSIRO collaborates with, um, at any one time, it's like multiple thousands mm. of um, companies at any one time, yeah. um, as well as pretty much every university and research organisation in the country. Yeah. Uh, and so um, as a as a place where, um, as a place, CSIRO is a place in some sense, in an intellectual sense. It's got a massive surface area and therefore massive opportunity to to um, join the dots and, and make connections. Um, sometimes you do it one-on-one, -on -one, sometimes you actually, as you say, there's a convening power associated with, with just like a whole finding a whole bunch of people who are interested in a similar problem mm. and saying right let's let's take a crack at that one. Mm. My eyes are um, going cross-eyed thinking about the um, you know the old school dot to dots where you follow <laughs> the numbers. What that dot to dot would actually look like uh, in terms of your day to day life. Um, now, w one of the things that we speak about a lot on the podcast is how technology is shaping our world. Um, and I know this is an area that you're particularly passionate about. And I've heard you speak very eloquently about the role of engineers, of which you are one, uh, in shaping the world and the fact that we need to have um, move on, basically change the perception that we have about what engineering or the STEM disciplines more broadly are. Um, can you speak a little bit about that and why it's something that you are so passionate about? Um, sure. So, um, let's start first with STEM. Mm -hmm. Um, so my take is that, so, so STEM is an acronym. It stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. So I, I know that that sounds obvious to say, but the thing is that it's almost become a word. Yeah. Um, and what's more, it's become a word with, with meaning that actually refers, um, most of the time to, um, 
K through 12 science and maths education. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it refers to a skill set, but it's kind of an amorphously defined skill set that's something that you kind of carry into your career and your your life as you go through. Um, but and you know word, words create worlds um, and become by becoming a word and becoming a word that's almost synonymous with science, I think mm. we're actually um, sweeping away some of the the nuance that the creators of the acronym actually originally meant. Now um, you know, uh, recapturing the original meaning of the word once it's escaped into the lexicon, it's just kind of it, it is what it is. Yeah. Um, but actually, m my problem with with STEM in its current usage is that it is 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 it has become a very specific usage, um, and what it does is it flattens the difference between those four letters. So um, science and maths um, are motivated by discovery. They're about a way of understanding the world. They're a curiosity-driven thing. Mm -hmm. Technology is about making things. And engineering is about solving human problems by making technology through your maths and science skills. Hmm. So like they, they, they actually, each of those letters comes with a different motivation. They're similar skill sets, but they come with a different motivation. Mm. And so um, the challenge associated with the current usage of the word STEM is that we flatten all of those sets of motivations. And, and I wonder um, that we may well be narrow casting to the set of people who would already have an affinity to science and maths anyway. Yeah. So I guess that that's where I'd go with that. Um, and in terms of uh, engineering, um, engineering um, uh, as a profession is about technological trust and particularly te technological trust at scale. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mean by that is that when you drive across the Sydney Harbour Bridge, you trust that the Sydney Harbour Bridge is not going to fall down underneath you. Yeah. And it's because you trust that qualified engineers have certified that this is actually a safe thing to do, yeah. um, which is very different to um, some somebody just lashing together a few drums in their backyard and then punting it out onto the onto Sydney Harbour and um, sticking your car on it and hoping that it'll all be okay. Yeah. Um, or indeed doing the experiments that tell you just how much load a, <laughs> a, a drum could actually hold um, uh, on the water. So it's important, I think, to to always go back to what is, what is the central promise of engineering and the mm. central promise of engineering is technological trust at scale, which gives you a very different set of motivations. It gives you a very different set of raison, different raison d'etre for, for the discipline and the people in the discipline. Mm. And it then becomes about impact and shaping the world and it making that positive difference, which is what your your motivating forces are. Um, yeah, I, I've had lots of conversations recently about um, whether we need to actually step away from the term STEM because it has it does have that very flat, it's about science, uh, technology, and therefore it isn't create, it, you know, there's nothing creative. There's it's a, and that that is a misnomer, uh, and and is really doing the intent of the term now um, a disservice. So, I, but I haven't yet come up or heard anyone come up with a term that you would use in exchange. You know, it it's it does serve a purpose. The acronym exists for a reason. So, um, I mean, part of it is potentially telling stories uh, about what it is that engineers do and what it is that technologists do. And I, that definition that you just gave about the different role of each one of them is is um, I think quite a powerful definition. This idea of um, technology, technology uh, trust at scale, 
when we're looking at um, uh, digital technologies specifically now, do you think we're in a situation where we have a dearth of trust? And is that analogous to other periods over history, do you think? Um, my take would be that so so I was I was fascinated um, to watch a, a conversation on um, a particular um, online platform unfold where somebody asked the question, what's the difference between a software engineer and a software developer? Mm. Um, and it was interesting for me to watch that unfold. I, I did not engage in the discussion because yeah. I figured that possibly would not be helpful. But um, like the, the, they got to got to very detailed specifications about the technology and like the the role statements and all the rest of it. But for me, if you haul all the way back and you say, well, so engineering is about trust at scale. Yeah. Um, the software development is about developing software. Software engineering is about doing something that allows you to understand whether or not um, that's 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 a trustworthy piece of software in that mm, sense. Um, so so I guess I'd go there, yeah. um, and I would say that um, uh, the the there's not as much focus on that side of engineering when people talk about digital technologies mm. these days, um, and you can see it in the sense that like the 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 barrier to entry is fabulous these days. It's fabulous, right? It's it's really low. Um, most people can cut software pretty easily, um, but the thing is that it is um, uh, it is very much like somebody lashing together some 44-gallon drums and sticking them mm. on Sydney Harbour and seeing what happens. But mm. the thing is that it can impact so many people because you can kind of jump on it really quickly and if it happens to be a piece of software that goes viral, but actually people haven't been paying attention to the trustworthy side of it, um, that's that's the issue. Um, and so, so there's – there is um, kind of like just a lived acceptance these days that people are going to be pumping the software out and it may or may not be of um, mm. particular degrees of robustness, stability, um, ethics, uh, all of that sort of mm. stuff. So, um, and I think on top of that, um, our generation in particular has been really quite unsophisticated about sort of testing for that. But yeah, I mean, there are points in points in history where things like that have happened before, right? I mean, you think about um, the crazy gold rush that happened when the internal combustion engine was created and people yeah. would kind of lash it to all sorts of stuff um, and it really, you know, it was not safe and it, it <laughs> did not do good things. Um, same is true when steam engines were created. You know, there's, there's, there's moments in history all over the place where um, a particular technology has kind of escaped the confines of scientists and people making stuff in their garage and like everybody's imagination is fired by it and everybody is trying to do stuff with it. Um, and then um, after that kind of crazy gold rush phase, then people start to um, do things like, you know, introduce um, the idea that you might want to keep track of the speed of the internal combustion engine that is attached <laughs> to your car, that you might want to um, wear seatbelts, that you might want to actually have people have driver's licenses when they're operating it. You know, all of that sort of stuff comes later mm. um, and that is that I mean that's a social thing that's a political thing that is also an engineering thing and they all kind of happen in dialogue with each other mm. um, and I think you know the, the degree of sophistication of the conversation these days um, around digital technologies is, is, is already like much more sophisticated than it was even five years ago yeah. um, when we you know we really experienced for the first time and we became aware that it had kind of permeated our lives without us really realizing it um, now we're aware of it we don't necessarily have all 
the answers yet, mm. but at least we're aware of it and that mm. conversation is starting, which is, you know, a good place to be. Mm. And and I think for a long time, uh, and, and it is entirely symptomatic of my background, I'm a, a lawyer by training, and so I looked at um, how do you create um, the the conditions of possibility for systems of trust around digital technologies and and look at it from a uh, largely from a regulatory perspective um obviously there is a big engineering component to that um and uh, the last uh, guest that we had on the podcast uh, was a wonderful gentleman Sharad Sharma from India who's doing some really exciting work um around uh, responsible engineering uh, in uh, in India um, so I think there's there is uh, both of those um, aspects. Obviously, there's a political aspect. There's society actually waking up and demanding that we have technology that is more responsible. So to go to that, uh, to to circle back to the conversation we were having about the conditions of possibility in Australia, you identified that one of the areas that. Australia should and and is excelling at is around responsible development of technology. What do you think we need to put in place to actually foster that in Australia, both within our universities or with our politicians or in society? I mean, it's actually part of the reason why this podcast exists because we want to prompt the conversations about these types of issues. Um, so, so uh, being a good academic, I will um, <laughs> I will not, not stray into areas where where um, I'm not necessarily yeah, qualified sorry, to of go. Course. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. But but um, uh, I guess the you know one one really interesting example is that um, uh, a team in uh, in my part of CSIRO Data sixty one um, a team was uh, was involved in convening the conversation about what um, Australia's like the national ethics AI ethics principles yeah. would be, um, and now there's actually a whole active research area in working out how to operationalize that technically. Yeah. yeah. So. That's not that, that doesn't go to the legal questions, it doesn't go to the political questions, it doesn't go to the policy interventions, yeah, yeah. but it does actually solve a deeply important pragmatic research question, mm. which is, you know, it's nice to write down all of these ethics principles, but mm. how do you actually operationalize it in an engineering sense? Yeah. Um, and so so there's there's actually activity like that. And yeah. like it's kind of cool that Australia is a place where that just sort of seems obvious. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that the pandemic taught us was that um, Australia actually still does believe believe in itself as a community. Australia does actually still believe in itself as citizens as well as consumers. Mm. Um, and so like it's it's the kind and of place- that's actually more rare than we appreciate. I know. We spend a lot of time in other countries. Like the, the, there is still a pride in being Australian. Uh, it's something we need to treasure. <laughs> yeah. And look, you know, we were willing to, we were willing to, to do the hard yards because mm. we could see that there was a collective benefit. Like mm. we do actually believe still in the idea of a community. Mm. Um, and so, so Australia is like conditions of possibility. Mm. Australia is a place where you can imagine that a profoundly important piece of applied technical research mm. could sit beside the society and the economy and the political dis discourse um, around this. Mm. And Australia is is a place where something like this could actually, mm. like that research question could actually flourish, which mm. is, you know, th there's an example there. And and frankly, in that, in those respects, the, the technical application of AI ethical principles is so important. I, I mean, there's a famous example um, uh, of, uh, uh, and uh, uh, Marche, I'm going to mispronounce her last name. Uh, she was uh, a, a um, Dutch representative of at the EU Parliament, and she read out 
um, a set of AI principles uh, that were American AI principles and Chinese AI principles. And they, they were basically identical. Oh, how fascinating. And so it really is the implementation. It's the technical implementation of it that makes the difference in that sense, because you can have those high level principles, but unless they're actually implemented, it makes, has very little difference. So maybe we'll, we'll um, flag this as a future episode of the podcast of something to, to drill down in. Oh, how fascinating. Yeah. I've got more reading to do. Thank you. Excellent. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you the, send you the, uh, the link. So when you're looking at the, the, your career over the last period of time, and, and when you were talking about uh, your career not necessarily having a particular strategic pathway. That's something that definitely resonates with me. I, I have this um, catch cry of I, if I'm ever doing what I thought I was going to be doing five years uh, before, it, it, like, I never have in my uh, career to date. But uh, let's assume there is some logical coherence because there is inevitably. Um, what's something that you know now that you wish you had have known 15 years ago? And this is really in the context of looking backwards to look forward and the advice for people who are listening to conversations like this, wanting to break into them um, and trying to make it a bit more accessible for people. So 15 years ago, um, I was recently asked, uh, what advice would you give your teenage self? Mm. Um, which is actually, I think, a bit different to the advice I'd give myself 15 years well, ago. Can we can we have answers to both? So the advice I'd give my teenage self mm. would be um, just r relax a bit and be willing to let it unfold. You don't need to know the answer to everything in advance, mm -hmm. Um which I think, you know, most people would tell their teenage self because you don't have the confidence of actually just sort of rolling over a few of life's bumps and figuring figuring out the solution and being confident that you can probably tackle whatever the next bump is. Um, and that would mean that I would maybe have made some different choices. I don't know that I would necessarily have ended up in a different place, but um, I wouldn't necessarily have felt the need to sort of um, know, examine all of the million possible future worlds um, with quite the same level of obsessive detail um, <laughs> and just relax into it a bit. Um, and I, and I, th I think that goes to the idea that, um, you know, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up, but I do know what I want to do. Another way of describing that would be to say I don't I don't necessarily have clarity of the destination, but I do have a fairly clear compass, um, and that compass allows me to make choices as I go through life. Um, the The advice to the fifteen to me fifteen years ago, I think, would be much more about. Um, Actually, the this it's okay to actively seek to put yourself in circumstances where you're uncomfortable, mm. as long as it's a productive discomfort. Mm. Uh, and what makes it productive is much more proactively seeking advice and mentorship, um, and finding your way into different bodies of literature so that you can find your way through that mm. as well. Um, and the me 15 years ago was right on the cusp of my very first sort of significant leadership role that would have come 
two years later. Um, and possibly just a whisper in my ear from 15 years ago would be human beings are actually kind of interesting. Who knew? <laughs> Uh, because you had previously been focused on the technical. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. 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 Interesting. Who knew humans could be interesting? Um, that is, I've heard you describe them as squishy, <laughs> squishy, <laughs> wet, squishy, things. wet, squishy things as humans. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, I, I think that's really interesting. My, my advice to myself as a teenager would have been to continue to do science and maths. Um, I, I look back on that period of my life. I loved science. I loved maths. I loved the satisfaction of it. And yet I ended up doing humanities and, and law at university. And I tell me about I how that unfolded. Think, That's fascinating. Well, I don't, I don't think there was ever, you know, I don't remember ever having a teacher sit me down and say, you know, you should go in this direction. It was just, it was a natural evolution, um, of the, the subject choices. I'm sure there's a lot of, there would be research now to indicate, you know, why it was that I, I ended up in that direction. And I think it happens far too often for, for, um, for young women. Um, but that would be the advice that I would, uh, give myself. So, um, it's never too late. Yeah, I know. It's never too late. Uh, well, look, you never know <laughs> if the tech policy design center goes bust, uh, I may go back and do a, a degree in engineering. So you've heard it here first, everyone, but we're not going bust. So it's <laughs> Okay. But I might still do engineering. Why that not? Correct. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Um, all right. Well, we wrap up the podcast with a question around um, uh, books, resources, and things that you have really enjoyed reading that have broadened your mind or your perspective, or that you think would be really good resources for people um, looking to learn more about um, some of the issues that we've spoken about today. Um. Do I have to pick just one? No, you can give Excellent. as many as you like. The more, the better. Okay, so um, for me, so so just a couple of just just last week, I was yeah. involved in two entirely separate conversations where, um, uh, in, in both of those conversations, we were reflecting on um, how a particular particular piece of reading actually just unlocked a whole opened mm. a door to whole new worlds. Yeah. Um, and sometimes you don't need to be given a reading list. You just need to be given an introduction into a body of knowledge and you go from there. Um, so for me, um, my first real introduction to sort of starting to think in a sort of hopefully more nuanced and hopefully less physics engineering way of human beings. Um, for me, that introduction was a book called the techniques of civilization by Lewis Mumford. Um, it's a great book. Uh, what it also does is it just it it opens the door to a world. So if people from my with my background to understand the wider context in which you are doing your research, making your technology, having it engage, you know, it, it, having it be in dialogue with the world around you in the wider context, that was a great introduction into mm. a whole new world. So so that would be one uh, for people coming from the other direction. Um, and it's kind of a meta recommendation. Um, there is a, uh, publication called the brilliant, which is, it's a science communication publication. And what, what it does is, um, they profile science communicators. Mm. And so again, in terms of opening a door, if you want a really rapid fire way to get access to the names of, and therefore follow up on the comms of science communicators who really know their stuff about talking about particular areas of science. It's mm. like, it's, it's, it's a doorway that just opens up 
nirvana mm. for you. So if you want to come from the other direction and understand like a massive array of science and technology and engineering and all of that sort of stuff, that's a great place to go. Um, and in terms of just understanding how much um, imagination influences the technology that gets built, um, it's kind of a sideways recommendation, but first of all, watch 2001 A Space Odyssey and, <laughs> and, and then read The Ship Who Sang by Anne McCaffrey. They were created huh. both at basically exactly the same time. They were emergent properties of um, the, the space race zeitgeist that was on mm -hmm. at the time. Um, they both actually talk about um, what these days we would call artificial intelligence and relationships between humans and machines, mm -hmm. but they have utterly different imaginings of how that would play out. Mm. Just completely different imaginings. Fabulous. Well, I'm going on leave at the end of this week, so I will um, – I, I don't think I've ever watched Space, Space Odyssey, so there you go. <laughs> I will put that at the end of my week of leave um, so that I can relax uh, and then uh, listen, to, watch that and uh, read the book once I've once I finished. So I, I know I said that was the last question, but I have one more question for you because I know if I don't ask it, uh, I will be kicking myself once I leave the studio, which is what does success look like for you in five years? Let's not be too, too unrealistic of timeline um five years from now what would make Eleanor happy um oh look I mean so there's the nerdy swat suck up student side of me um <laughs> what would what would make me happy is having done well at my job having yep. done a good job um uh more more broadly um you know the, I go back to I have no idea what I want to be when I grow up um but more broadly than that um I do seriously think that uh, the world the world is at an inflection point. Um, there are a number of grand strategic forces at play at the moment and they are starting to collide and they're going to continue to start to collide. Um, and so for me, success would be um, uh, doing my part in wider conversations around imagining how that might unfold mm. uh, and finding ways for us collectively to um, uh, ride the turbulence that's coming rather than getting dumped by it. Yeah, I think that is um, that is an excellent measure of success. I've just finished literally today writing an article on the tech decoupling of the US uh, and China, which I think we can now say has happened uh, given Biden's decision on semiconductors. But we're starting a very deep conversation at the end of uh, at the end. But I I couldn't agree with you more. And I think that's an excellent measure of success. So Eleanor, thank you so much uh, for being uh, here with us today. Um, I've really enjoyed the conversation uh, and um, lots of uh, fodder for us to go in different directions with future podcasts. So thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me. Tech Mirror is a podcast of the Tech Policy Design Centre at the Australian National University. This episode was produced on Ngunnawal lands by Jack Fox. Ben Gowdy provided invaluable research and post-production support. If you would like to support the pod, please give us a five-star rating or even better, leave us a short review. This really helps us to get the word out. We also love it when you send us questions or comments. We read them all. You can find out more by following us on Tech Policy Design on Twitter or LinkedIn or Google Tech Policy Design Centre and follow the links. Thanks for listening. Get in touch and get involved.